Hi, this is Colin. If you hear my dog Declan barking in the background, it's because he doesn't want any more episodes of Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show, and he doesn't want any more seasons. This is season two, and Declan thinks if we have season three, that's bad. That means people are getting impeached even more, and that's not good for democracy or apparently not good for dogs either. Today, you'll hear some pretty disturbing stuff about how close we came on January 6th to much worse violence than we had. You'll hear a television expert talk about how this worked as media, plus factoids and a closing essay by me. So stick around. punched and kicked and mauled and spit upon and hit officers with baseball bats and fire extinguishers, cursed the cops, and stormed our capital. The truth is usually seen and rarely heard. Truth is truth whether denied or not. And afterwards, overwhelmed by emotion, he broke down in the rotunda and he shouted out, what the F, man? Is this America? The A's are 57. The nays are 43. And if you use this model, I don't know how Kamala Harris doesn't get impeached if the Republicans take over the House because she actually bailed out rioters, and one of the rioters went back to the streets and broke somebody's head open. You know, I'm not afraid of Donald Trump running again in four years. I'm afraid he's going to run again and lose. Because he can do this again. And the truth is, President Trump had spent months calling his supporters to a march on a specific day, at a specific time, in specific places, to stop the certification. Two-thirds of the senators present not having voted guilty. It is therefore ordered and a judge that the said Donald John Trump be acquitted of the charge in said article. Get down! Can our country and our democracy ever be the same if we don't hold accountable the person responsible for inciting the violent attack against our country, our capital, and our democracy? Is this America? Hello, and welcome to what I devoutly hope and believe will be the final episode of Pardon Me Season 2. It would be okay with me, too, if there were not another season of Pardon Me, because that would mean we have drifted away from impeachments and we are functioning better as a democracy. <laughs> but I can't make any guarantees whatsoever. So today, we are going to wrap up our coverage of this particular impeachment iteration and revisit certain aspects of the trial itself, which we really didn't get a good chance to cover in real time because of the way the deadlines worked out. And you'll hear a final essay from me. But to begin with, there are a lot of pressing questions that still hover over what we might call the triggering event for this impeachment. And that, of course, was the attack 
on the U.S. Capitol uh, on January 6th. And here to talk to us about that is David Priest, Chief Operating Officer at the Lawfare Institute, Senior Fellow at the Michael B. Hayden Center for Intelligence at George Mason University, and a former intelligence officer at the CIA. His most recent book is How to Get Rid of a President, History's Guide to Removing Unpopular, Unable, or Unfit Chief Executives. Welcome to our show, David. Thank you, Colin. It's a pleasure to be with you, although I wish we were talking about something more cheerful. So the place I want to begin, because it's kind of haunted me, particularly as more details emerged, both during the trial, because some of the quote-unquote, never-seen-before video that was presented, and also analysis of that video. So we, we're starting to know that the rioters, the marauders, the insurrectionists, whatever we're going to call them, they got closer to members of Congress and to Vice President Pence than mm-hmm. I think had been previously understood. It now also appears that Vice President Pence may have been accompanied by an officer holding the so-called nuclear football. And so I want to begin by saying this can be interpreted in two possible ways. One interpretation is, you know what, when it really started to get hairy, experience and and training kicked in, they knew what to do, they managed to get Pence to safety, they managed to get Pelosi to safety, ultimately they were able to secure doors and move people, you know, and no, no members of Congress actually were harmed. And then the other possible way of thinking about it that's not totally irreconcilable with the first way is, wow, luck played a much bigger role in all of this than we should be comfortable with, that we were incredibly fortunate that things just shook out the way that they were. We could be having a very different conversation about these marauders in possession of the nuclear football or terrible violence being perpetrated on Speaker Pelosi or somebody else. I don't know. Can you just sort of comment on where on that continuum maybe you fall? Yeah, I could argue either side of that, Colin. So let me present the basics of both. Yes, luck played a role. And I think most Americans and others around the world who were watching did not realize just how close the insurrectionists came to people like Mitt Romney in the hallway of the Capitol building, to the members in the chamber, and physically to Vice President Pence, Until we saw the video that was prepared by the House impeachment managers and played at the President's Senate impeachment trial, it was a brilliant piece of visualization, taking the locational data of the protesters that had entered the Capitol building and correlating that with the location of people like Mike Pence, Mitt Romney, Nancy Pelosi, and others. And that showed just how close physically they were in a building that seems to loom large, but is actually a relatively small building, all things considered. A few different turns, a few different doors being broken down at the right time. And yes, you could have had more face-to-face interaction between some of these violent protesters and members of Congress and staff. And that's where I think luck plays a role. On the other side, however, you mentioned in particular Mike Pence, And Mike Pence has Secret Service protection. And the Secret Service, among many other things, is very, very good at training and preparing for events like this, both in the general sense, but also in very specific aspects. They do not take someone under their protection into a building or a facility without having scouted out all of the exits, option A, option B, option C for moving the package if they need to, and for getting that person out of there. And they train for contingencies in different situations like that, such as the Capitol building, a place that the vice president often is. 
if it came down to an actual confrontation where the insurrectionists got within eyesight of Mike Pence, I have no doubt that the Secret Service would have handled that immediate threat quickly and capably, and they would have removed both Vice President Pence and if he did have any sensitive equipment with him, whether nuclear codes or classified information, that they would have protected that material using one of their many protocols to get him away from the danger at the moment. Now, you're focusing on Pence there. Obviously, members of Congress, there are a lot of them. You can't protect them with the Secret Service in any comparable way. That's not really the Secret Service's job. So it did seem as though one of the lessons of that day was that on any given day, members of Congress might be more vulnerable to assault than we tended to think about Absolutely. Or, uh, up to January 5th. Yeah, talk about that. Absolutely. I'll, I'll put another dividing line here between House leadership, particularly the Speaker, and other members of the House of Representatives. And there's a parallel for the Senate as well. The Capitol Police and their security protection for individuals, of course, they cover the entire complex and beyond. They cover the members, they cover the staff. But in terms of personal protection, they focus on the speaker and house leadership. So Nancy Pelosi is always going to have security with her when she's going somewhere. And while not necessarily the Secret Service team around the vice president and its connection to the Secret Service at the White House protecting the president and others and the real-time communication, it's definitely a dedicated security team that also prepares for contingencies. For the average member of Congress, they do not have a dedicated security detail with them. So Nancy Pelosi would be in a position to be evacuated more clearly, more cleanly, and with the security of knowing that the team around her knew what to do. Other members of Congress, they will walk across the street from the House office building to the Capitol without security. They will enter the building without security on a regular basis. And even on that day, many of them were in their offices or walking around in the hallway without any direct security detail of their own. So that's where the real danger was. If a insurrectionist decided to grab a random member of Congress and, and do some physical harm to them, it would boil down to whether there was a Capitol Police officer nearby at the time or not. It would not be a matter of a protection protocol kicking in for people who were dedicated to that person. And some of that protection protocol, I assume, has to do with chain of succession, too. I mean, there's a reason that right. you protect the speaker just ex officio, but also you protect the speaker because she, in this case, is part of that chain. Exactly right. So I was going to ask this at the end, but it just it seems like it needs to come up right now then. We live in a society, we want to live in a society where the members of the House and the members of the Senate do not require intense physical protection. I mean, here in Connecticut, every summer, Chris Murphy, U.S. Senator, walks mm -hmm. across the state. I forget how many days it takes. I don't know, he's maybe got an aide with him or something, a body man to carry something. You know, he's not surrounded by security. We don't want to live in that country where there's somebody with a submachine gun standing next to him, you know, in a paramilitary uniform or five people, you know, that way. But it's hard to understand. And I, we're going to talk uh, a little bit later, David, about the hearings that are going to come up and all this stuff. But mm -hmm. at the end of those hearings, you know, you might have to make decisions of that kind. To what degree? I mean, after 9-11, we had to do a whole bunch of stuff. We had to pass a Patriot Act. We had to sort of say, well, there's stuff that we were casual about that we can't be casual about anymore. And I'm just wondering, as you look into the future, what you think about stuff like that. Yeah, it goes back even longer than 9-11, Colin. If you look at the long history of our country, for the first hundred years or so, any citizen could walk right into the White House. 
there was a police officer often on duty, but there wasn't the Secret Service. There wasn't the element of personal protection of the president. And in fact, a few presidents had people angry who would come in and accost them and physically threaten them. Of course, that changed over time. Security became a little stronger. And then with things like the Cold War and the existential threat that could come, as well as, of course, 9-11, security measures would, would expand around the White House. The Capitol building had a very similar but very, very much smaller expansion of its security. The most dramatic one is the building of the so-called visitor center in the last 20 years, which basically pushed farther away from the core of the Capitol, the initial screening of people coming in. But Congress is supposed to be open. There are some things that have to take place in secret, like classified hearings of the intelligence committees, for example. But there are galleries because the Constitution says these are open deliberations. This is the, the people's house in many ways. So the fact is you can't give the level of security to the Capitol that you give to the White House or an executive branch agency or department. That said, what we have seen since the insurrection on January 6th is an expansion of the perimeter security, that is putting up barriers, doing the kinds of things that normally had not been done around the Capitol as a way of protecting against a repeat of that event. Visitors can still get in by going through screening and everything, but it does limit the access. I suspect that these measures are temporary in a way that the ones around the White House after 9-11 were not. Most of the things that happened after 9-11 have continued in terms of the access to the, uh, the, the very close area around the White House. You still cannot get there a way you could a little over 20 years ago. I believe the Capitol will essentially reopen almost as normal. The real change that will have to take place is a change in the predictive intelligence side of things. Are you connecting the people who work for the Capitol Police and the Metropolitan Police of Washington, D.C.? Are you connecting the intelligence work that they're doing to identify threats and make them clear to their superiors? Are you connecting that to the actual movement of security officers and protective agents around the complex to meet those threats? That appeared not to happen on January 6th. And I suppose we'll talk about the commission or something that will look into that. But that's really where the change needs to happen is a better integration of threat warnings and intelligence with the actual positioning and backups and contingency plans for the law enforcement and other security personnel around the Capitol. So we already know from reporting that there was some intelligence about what might be happening, about a possible plan or intention to storm Congress, break windows, push in doors, get violent. It wasn't as widely circulated or as deeply circulated as it should have been. Maybe we should start there. So one of the things that appears to be the case anyway is that people who needed to know something like that did not know it in a sufficiently widespread way. And I think there's other another question that goes with this that's kind of more heuristic in nature. You know, anybody eyeballing that situation on the ellipse as it started to build up would, I would assume, presumably say, wow, we might not have as many bodies as we need for this. Let's get more bodies like right now. And that didn't seem to happen until it was too late. Maybe you can talk about both of those things. Yeah, I will say that Washington, D.C. is a unique place in many ways. One of the ways in which it's unique that relates directly to this conversation is the fact that on any given weekend and on most weekdays around the year, maybe not so much in winter, but almost all the rest of the time, 
there is a peaceful protest or demonstration somewhere in the city, usually around the National Mall area, on some topic. Sometimes it's at or near a foreign embassy. Often it's at or near the White House. Sometimes it's at or near the Capitol or the Supreme Court. All of the law enforcement agencies that operate in Washington, D.C., and there are a lot of them, from the Secret Service to the protective security for every agency and department that has a building in Washington to the Capitol Police and, of course, the police of the District of Columbia. All of them are used to dealing with First Amendment protected speech and protests and demonstrations. They have seen groups ranging from two people to hundreds of thousands of people, and they know in general how to deal with that that they cannot arrest people for saying somewhat incendiary things. They know how to try to move people and guide people. And they're they're very comfortable with large crowds doing things that do look potentially dangerous on TV. They've dealt with this for a long, long time. So to me, I look at that and I say, if I'm a Capitol Police officer and I've seen things like this, maybe not exactly the same, but like this many times before, it is not my natural assumption that a few hundred of those people are, are going to literally pull down the barriers, beat me with them, and march right into the Capitol. My assumption is probably they're going to behave like previous crowds, even agitated ones have behaved before. But you point to something else, which is the intelligence that was available before the event. It's not just about the officer who is standing there on the steps and whether he should have called a red alert because he saw several hundred people marching with flags and chanting. It's about the decision-making that happened before and during the event based on the intelligence that appears was available. This is what a commission or an investigation really needs to dig into. What was known, how was it produced and disseminated to decision makers, whether within the Capitol Police or to the members of the House and Senate th themselves. How is that disseminated among other law enforcement entities in Washington, D.C.? And then where I think the most interesting investigations will go, what did the decision makers do with that information? Because if you're the chief of the Capitol Police and you're getting intelligence saying that there are some people in this protest who are seeking to use it to actually storm the building, to overwhelm the existing Capitol Police force, that's something you probably should take action on. So, you know, when, when we talk about a 9-11 style commission, it has the purpose that you just described. What happened? What went wrong? How can we make sure it doesn't go wrong again? But I think there's another overarching purpose to these things, at least in theory, and that is to create an, an official record so that we feel that we really do understand what happened. And particularly in this kind of so-called post-truth society where people just, you know, wind up with their own versions of what they think happened. I'm also a little troubled when they say a 9-11 style commission, because, I mean, I think that, you know, fell maybe a little bit short of that goal, starting with having President Bush and Vice President Cheney testify together, not on the record with no official transcript and not under oath. Right, right away, there's some questions here. But I mean, maybe as we're wrapping up here, uh, David Priest, you could say a little bit about that. I mean, I assume that's part of the goal here. Let's figure out what really happened. So it's just not this ongoing barroom argument about what happened. It absolutely should be. And in fact, Colin, that was one of the supposed goals of the impeachment trial was to try to get an understanding of what happened. But of course, that's not the trial we had. The trial we had was essentially opening statements, a little teaser about calling a witness, and then closing statements. There was actually no 
evidence introduced at trial that was not in the trial briefs, which was largely based on publicly known things like tweets and speeches, as well as some press reports. So the trial did not accomplish the purpose of a truth commission or an investigation that would unravel the facts. The 9-11 Commission is a good model in that respect, because the 9-11 Commission did do a lot of research, did uncover a lot of facts, but then importantly presented them to the public in a very approachable way. The 9-11 Commission report was actually a finalist from the National Book Foundation for its National Book Awards in 2004. It it's a great, well it's a really well-written, I still have my copy of it, I wouldn't let go of it. It's a really, really well-written account. Not for nothing did it get that literary honor. That's right. In that way, that's a model for what to look for here. Is there a way that a commission with a respected set of commissioners and perhaps co-chairs who are respected on both sides of the aisle and some stellar staff who can pull together something similar to create the definitive document of what happened and how it happened? And then, of course, make recommendations for how can we try to ensure that this doesn't happen again. That is a big task, but it's one that I think the enormous impact of this event deserves. That was David Priest, former CIA analyst and uh, author of How to Get Rid of a President, History's Guide to Removing Unpopular, Unable, or Unfit Chief Executives. Before we go to a break, here's the final, we hope, edition of Factoids with Kion Wolf. Due to waning interest in the impeachment, today's factoids will be devoted to Tapirs, a beautiful and endangered mammal. The word tapir comes from an indigenous Brazilian language. It means thick, referring to the animal's hide. In Indonesia, tapirs are called badak, which is also the word for rhinos. So if you yell that word, it could mean a rhino is charging, or that a tapir is peacefully plucking fruit and leaves with its prehensile snout. This seems like bad planning. In Thailand, the word for tapir translates roughly as mixture is finished and refers to the local belief that the tapir was created from parts of other animals. Anteater, horse, rhino, elephant, pig. Can I get a donkey? Most tapir species are located in... No, can I get a donkey was a figure of speech. Like, can I get an amen? I, I didn't want an actual donkey. Can you please take that donkey away? Most tapir species are located in South and Central America, except for the Malaysian tapir, the largest tapir, which can be 800 pounds. So in Southeast Asia, people probably talk about how nobody wants to mention the tapir in the room, especially if there's actually a tapir in the room. Have you noticed that people now mix up those two metaphors? The 800-pound gorilla is supposed to be something so big it can do whatever it wants. The elephant in the room is something that's huge that nobody talks about but people use them interchangeably. A group of tapirs? It's called a candle. A murder of crows. A candle of tapirs. The Trump defense team used less than three of its allotted 16 hours. Sorry, that sneaked in here somehow. Tapirs are often called living fossils because they've changed so little over the last 20 million years. Tapirs live in fragile ecosystems, and many are on the verge of extinction. 
For more information and to help, go to tapirs.org and click on Conservations. I'm Kyone Wolf, signing out of Factoids. Is anybody coming back to get this donkey? Anybody? Welcome back. I'm Colin McEnroe. This is Pardon Me. One of the things that I think is maybe a determining feature of this particular podcast is that we do see all of this as having a cultural aspect of it. And as a result, one of the most enlightening people to talk to you about these things is our guest right now. James Ponowazic is the chief television critic for The New York Times and the author of Audience of One. Donald Trump, Television and the Fracturing of America. We've talked to him several times before. Welcome back, James Ponowazic. Uh, thanks for having me back. So I have to say, I was I was just talking to our technical producer, Kat Pastor, about this, and I realized that, you know, most people, uh, we're just going to very briefly begin with something that you watched, and the reason we're going to do it is that I feel so sorry for you that you watched it, that I, I feel any use you can make of it, you know, it kind of alleviates your suffering a little bit. But I'm, I'm one of the, uh, you know, a lot of people would sort of begin their, their recent conversations about this by saying, you know, you know the My Pillow guy? Well, it turns out he's this kind of Trump on steroids conspiracy nut. Whereas I found out about My Pillow and the idea that owning one would be morally unconscionable at exactly the same moment. I had never heard of this guy or his product before. But you, you've been way down the rabbit hole. You watched a more than two hour disinfomercial about all of the chaos that we've just been through. And without necessarily repeating any of the more destructive contents of it, just give us a, what was that all about? We should say it was on the One American News Network, right? It was aired on the One American News Network. It was, it was not there. It was a, a production made and paid for by Mike Lindell, the notorious MyPillow exec, who has bought in or endorsed really intensely the just most out there theories that the election was elaborately stolen from Donald Trump. And he basically produced what was, you know, the equivalent of what you used to get in photocopied pamphlets handed out on street corners as a two hour plus TV special in which, yes, not to, to repeat misinformation, but he is basically interviewing people and laying out elaborate and sort of shoddily produced theories that a broad global hacking scheme was conceived to rip millions of votes away from Donald Trump and make Joe Biden president. So uh, I do want to ask one semi-substantive question, and, and I think it's one that we probably don't know the answer to. But uh, based on your reporting, we know that at the beginning of this thing, there's this kind of OANN, which is not an overly cautious news organization, nonetheless runs this kind of elaborate declaimer saying, basically, holy crap, this guy just gave us a whole bunch of money so we can put this yeah. thing on the air. So it's not us. It's not us. Don't Don't even call us if you don't like it, you know, and uh, there's this thing that's going on right now, which is 
clearly a reconfiguration and a repositioning of conservative news television. And Fox seems to be you know, tracking a little bit more towards the center and and the, they're being defined that way by Newsmax and OANN. And, and some yeah. of this might be just actual strategy, like, you know, we have to do something different. This other thing isn't going to work that much longer. You know, our ratings are actually going down in prime time. And some of it's lawsuits. Some of it's just getting sued by Smartmatic. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you have any thoughts about sort of how those two things interact to create the present moment. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I can't read any minds in the, the executive suites of these networks, but you were right that in addition to the text, the, the crazy, crazy text that Mike Lindell is putting out there, there, there are a couple of subtexts, one of which is that the election machine companies that have been widely impugned through these conspiracy theories in conservative media have struck back with massive and potentially existentially damaging lawsuits against some of the media or media figures perpetrating them. Hence the elaborate disclaimer that OANN began Lindell's piece with, you know, basically a please don't sue us statement, whether that works or not. So that is one thing that is going on in all of this coverage that these networks are trying to, they're trying to take advantage of the thirst among their base audience for these election conspiracies without suffering the damaging blowback. Now, one knock-on effect that had was that before this special aired, Lindell had appeared on Newsmax, a conservative competitor to OAN and a, a recipient of one of these threats where he launched into one of his choicer conspiracies on the air and was basically nervously shut down by the anchors on air. So he has this grievance and suddenly Newsmax, which was sort of benefiting from looking like the Trumpier alternative to Fox News, right? After Fox News committed the sin of admitting that Donald Trump had lost the election. Suddenly now Newsmax is looking squishy to this base. And so whether or not this was the sole or main motive, this is certainly providing an opportunity here for OAN to say, look how Trump we are. You know, we're going to air this conspiracy movie for, a, a, you know, nonstop on our air during the day. And, and certainly it provides them an opportunity to, you know, establish themselves to sell themselves as the true Trump network and siphon off some of that audience. So, yeah, th this is a subject for another day. Although, apropos of the Newsmax video, we should say that not only did they attempt to shut Lindell down, one of the anchors actually kind of ducked off camera. Walked off the air. You <laughs> yeah. see his empty chair. It was, right. it, was, it was an amazing moment, yes. It was, it was a really, I don't know what to do moment. I, my, none of my training has prepared me for this, so I'm just going to walk away. Anyway, we can't get too bogged down with this because we also want to talk about how the impeachment worked as television. And my thoughts, and I think they're very similar to your thoughts, and I'm a little bit of a McLuhanist anyway, is that, you know, the House managers realized where they were, which is to say, yes, they were in Washington, D.C. Yes, they were in the U.S. Capitol, but mainly they were on television. And McLuhan would tell you, if you're on television, you should make a television show. And, and that's yeah. essentially what they did, right? I mean, they kind of made a television show. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there was the, the horrifying meta element that you're aware of watching it, which is that they are describing a, a crime at the scene of the crime to the victims of the crime, right? Which adds this whole additional element of, of horror to it. 
But as in a lot of these things, particularly in this impeachment, in many ways in the first impeachment, where the outcome is essentially a foregone conclusion, there is the the television audience to think of as well. And so obviously a, a big part of what they were trying to do is to produce something compelling to that larger audience, which had seen the events play out on live TV on January 6th. But largely from the outside, you know, we saw the, the the crowd sort of swelling the Capitol and encroaching and we're hearing reports from inside and things were coming out on social media. But as the days went on and we saw more and more of it and there was more video available, it actually became more horrifying. So they're basically taking this and, and editing it into a story and, and not only showing us a lot of new and sort of shocking in themselves pieces of video, but editing it into a narrative and, you know, using shifts among points of view to sort of tell a story. Really? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and doing so very, very effectively. And we yeah. shouldn't we shouldn't run past this without saying, and I don't know if they calculated this, but the other thing that they kind of got out of it was putting the Republican senators in the position of having to either watch or not watch, react or not react. I mean, comedians had a lot of fun with this. Jimmy Kimmel said, yes, the presentation was so emotional and compelling that Republicans almost looked up from their phones. And Andy Borowitz said Marco Rubio revealed on Thursday night that he got his highest score ever on Candy Crush Saga. (laughs) And The Daily Show talked about the new GOP product called Impeach Pods, noise-canceling headphones that block out evidence. But, you know, here's all this really searing, horrifying, disturbing footage, pretty skillfully edited into montages. And particularly those Republican senators who know they're not going to vote to convict. What do they do? Because, you know, in a way they could risk looking pretty heartless and soulless if they don't react at all to this stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, in a nutshell, a large part of what they did was sort of gritted their teeth and powered through it. One thing that that helped them in this instance was that there was actually, they managed to get an agreement with the cameras inside the Senate chamber not to have the the Senate jurors shown on camera during the presentation. So you couldn't see people reading their books or looking at their, at their phones or whatnot. But still, nonetheless, you know, I do think that a big part of the political intent with this is to, you know, if you're assuming that enough Republican jurors are going to vote to acquit, then you want to present as powerful as you can an image of just what exactly they're overlooking, what exactly they're willing to absolve or excuse, you know, essentially make them squirm as much as possible. You know, I, I think that in many ways it was it was not so much we're trying to persuade you, although, you know, I know Senator Cassidy ended up voting for conviction. Maybe he was not a guaranteed vote going in, but it was not so much, you know, we're going to persuade you, but we're going to make it as uncomfortable as possible to stick with what you've already decided to do. You know, one thing that they could have done, a more, I I would say, primitive version or a raw version of what they did do was just say, all right, let's show them this video of Mitt Romney almost running into the wrong place, you know, because I mean, that does look like Olympus has fallen or something. I mean, it's it's pretty. But some genius Senate aide somewhere at some point whose name we'll never know probably said, oh, no, you guys should make some montages. Talk a little bit about the power of the montage. Yeah, and I think that's a case where, yes, you're right, you know. Individually, just in itself, seeing, you know, this famous presidential candidate, Mitt Romney, being turned around from, you know, heading toward 
you know, possibly grave physical danger. That's like found footage horror in itself. But I, I you know, I think in, what they did was they they kind of, I think, very brilliantly produced a narrative that, for one thing, followed the chronology of the attack. So it's like, while this is going on, this is going on. And here's where they were careful to position the audience in space at all times to the legislators and to the mob to the point of having a graphic inset on the screen that showed the map of the Capitol building and this sort of pulsing cancerous light that shows you where the mob is in, you know, and how close they were often to the legislators that, you know, a lot of them were talking about killing. So that's one thing. Another thing, you know, j- just to, to, to get into it quickly that I thought they used the editing skillfully for was, you know, keep in mind, the House managers were not just trying to make the case that this was a really horrible thing. This is an, an impeachment trial. They are trying to prove culpability on the part of the president. And one thing that is a, you know, a, a historical thing with Donald Trump is that he sort of, you know, will hint at what he wants rather than, you know, he won't say, I want you to go down and scare, you know, Congress into giving me the election. You know, Michael Cohen has testified about this. He said, you know, he speaks in a code. A lot of people who have worked with him will say, so So one thing that the, the video did was sort of to use montage to change your point of view. So you're hearing Donald Trump on the stage saying, you know, blah, 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 we're going to give our senators the courage they need or whatever. And then you cut from that same line to videotape, you know, or handheld video in the audience, and you hear how the crowd received it. And they're chanting, you know, fight for Trump. You know, they're, they're chanting, you know, they're, they're chanting attack the Capitol. I think that, that was not the precise word, but something like invade the Capitol. So, you know, it's like, it's like you hear Trump say the, the text and then you hear this, the subtext that his crowd clearly got out of that. So I think that those, those shifts in point of view were another way of sort of powerfully visually making the case that, you know, here's what he was saying And here is the message that his crowd was receiving. It kind of seems as though, I mean, first of all, ideally, we won't be having impeachments all the time. Lindsey Graham and Kamala Harris notwithstanding that hopefully this is not going to keep going going on. But if it does, it feels like it'll never be the same again. Right. I mean, one of the things they realize is, you know, we got a pretty good cast for this thing. I mean, Jamie Raskin is a you know good orator. He's also got a very compelling, very horrible, tragic backstory going into it. Stacey Plaskett is like just a breakout star. They, we get some good people here, but you know, they're not going to keep people riveted Dick Wolf style to this thing, you know, or or twenty four style to this thing. But we do have stuff. Some of it and most of it is created by the perpetrators, whether we're talking about the marauders themselves and what they were doing or what President Trump was saying on the ellipse. We've got stuff that really is pretty compelling, you know, and we'll just use we'll effectively take the House managers and kind of turn them into almost like anchors who throw to the clip with a little bit of oration stitched in here. It seems as though. You know, anything like this in the future is probably going to be a lot like what we just saw and a lot less like what we saw the first time around, which was like some kind of I mean, the first Trump impeachment was kind of this really unwieldy Le Carre adaptation that was just incredibly hard to follow, you know, even if you were trying. Yeah, I mean, and that, you know, that is in part because the material of the first impeachment was 
requests and, you know, threats and coercions being made on public officials and, and, dip, and involving diplomats and politicians in other countries and, you know, people who, you know, actually make more of an attempt to do their work in private and, you know, maybe not necessarily leave records. And so you have people talking about phone calls that they've overheard, or they're talking about the tone in which they were told a certain thing. Whereas what you had with the mob at the Capitol, uh, it's really kind of a reflection of our society today. And, in, in, you know, in, in that, you know, people just, people just can't not document what they do anymore. People are you know, smashing in windows of the Capitol. They're doing things that by, you know, any simple, you know, understanding of the law are, are obvious crimes and they're live casting them. And, and so you're right. You know, what the, the House managers in this case were able to do was basically they simply edited a, they were able to edit a cinema Vey documentary for which they had, you know, dozens or hundreds of volunteer camera people. And I don't know if we'll ever see another, you know, impeachment like this again, but I think we'll see circumstances like this again a lot in the future, simply because of this, you know, kind of modern imperative never to have an unvideographed experience. You no, know, it's, it's like the Watergate burglars would be standing there, like you saying, "Okay, Emilio, you stand a little bit closer here, because I want to get us all in the picture." All right, we're gonna do yeah, a yeah. selfie. Yeah, they, I mean, they, they, right? <laughs> they'd be, they'd be, they'd be checking, you know, BB Rebozo's Instagram. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's. You just have to imagine, you know. I mean, there were also elements of it that there was that you know simply made you wonder, like, you know, what would an event like you know, the, the nine 11 attacks have like, if, you know, smartphones were more widespread, you know, just the, the, the ability both of attackers and the attacked to document what they're doing today is it's almost like, you know, it's almost like a, like a kind of like sixth sense, you know, it's, it's, it's like you're, you are able to see everywhere through other people's eyes because they're constantly recording what they're doing. Right. By the way, BB Rebozo's Instagram is the name of my favorite techno band. So thank you. For, <laughs> thank you for the, the, the shout out. But as we wind up here, I mean, one of the things that you document so well in the book is that a President Trump is a creature of television. He was created on television yeah. or created himself on television and then sort of governed and understood the world through television. Things that he saw on television were far more real than things frequently said to him in the Oval Office by people standing there in person, uh, all of this kind of stuff. And it's odd that it kind of devolved into this. I mean, it's clear, for example, after day one and that just incredibly effective 13-minute montage that he started yelling at his lawyers saying, well, where's my montage? How come we don't have a lot of montages? And, you know, Michael Vanderveen yeah. is going, look, I'm a personal injury lawyer. I don't know how to make montages. And so you wind up with this kind of montage for dummies 11-minute thing of just a lot of Democrats saying the word fight. But in a way, this turned into a group of people who are making a pretty tightly scripted 24 episode versus, I don't know, kind of a Letterman style shrugging, like, I don't know, we don't know how to make this any good. Well, nobody told us we had to make this any good. I mean, it was kind of a battle of TV skills at the end. Yeah. And a battle with maybe just out of necessity, but sort of different audiences and different purposes. I mean, what what the, the Trump team ended up making was, you know, it was just an 11 minute or whatever, basically a, a what about video, 
you know, it is, it's not created for the purpose so much of persuading anybody who's persuadable. But if you have already decided that you are on President Trump's side in this, if you've already decided your position, here's something that you can throw back at people, you know, when confronted with this otherwise really damning evidence. Well, what about when Elizabeth Warren said fight? What about when they said, what about, what about, what about, what about, what about, you know, and, and what aboutism is, is another, you know, a longtime strategy of, of Donald Trump, among others. But, you know, there, I think it is more, it's more a base communication strategy, you know, a way of hanging on to your people while you sort of like weather this this storm and regroup. You know, I, I don't think that their response was, you know, I don't think it won over any wavering independent voters in the middle, nor do I think it was intended to. Declan, my dog, would like me to tell you that that was James Ponowazic. He's the chief television critic for The New York Times and the author of Audience of One. I'm going to say the title. Don't worry, Declan. Donald Trump, Television and the Fracturing of America. So that's our show. I'm Colin McEnroe. This episode was produced by Betsy Kaplan and Jonathan McPants with Kat Pastor. Thanks to Katie Tularski and Jean Amatruda for helping out or at least standing still for what we did. And you can find all episodes of both seasons of Pardon Me on all your favorite podcast places and on our website at wnpr.org slash pardon me forever, forever. They will be there until the sun turns into a red dwarf, which I believe is in March of 2024. So we're going to close with an essay by me. I want to give credit to the music here also, which is by Endless Field. This might seem like an odd place to begin, but in the spring of 2013, I found myself walking around the town of Drada in Ireland. It's an odd place with murky, argued over history stretching back to at least the 12th century. Not many tourists go there, and the ones who do are probably interested in the nearby Neolithic passage tombs of Newgrange. We had flown to Dublin on fairly short notice because I had hit some kind of mental wall in 2013 that I could not easily describe. And we're both Irish-Americans, so that's what we do. We read a bit of Yeats or Seamus Haney, or listen to the music of Solace or Dervish, and if none of that works, fly away home to Ireland. So herself was having a rest up at our rental. The proprietor there had Googled me and wanted to talk earnestly about his own ventures into radio. I excused myself and walked down the hill into town. I found a coffee shop, ordered something, and looked for a place to sit. It was crowded, but there was a little space near a young couple, maybe in their 30s. I remember the man had long, dramatic-looking black hair. I, I asked if they'd mind. It depends, the man said, poker-faced. Who are you, and what are you doing here? I was surprised to hear the words that came out of my mouth. I'm an American journalist, and my country is so crazy, I had to get away from it. So here I am, without speaking. He simply patted the spot right next to him. 
right answer, I guess. It was Sandy Hook, mostly. We were nearing the six-month anniversary, and I had realized that, for the nation at large, all those dead children were not going to change anything. The month before, President Obama had come to Newtown and had left with 11 relatives of the dead on Air Force One. They went to the U.S. Capitol and watched a very modest gun control measure, improved background checks, die before their eyes. It had been hammered out by a senator from each party, Pat Toomey and Joe Manchin. There were 54 yeas and 46 nays, but we all know what that means in the Senate. The measure failed. A few Republicans broke ranks to vote for it. Pat Toomey, Susan Collins. Is this all sounding a little familiar? Already, the first gust of public enthusiasm for curbing our crazy gun culture was losing airspeed in the polls. Mitch McConnell, then the minority leader, joined the contingent blocking the bill. Obama was as visibly angry as we ever saw him. Sometimes I get so sick of this country and its baked-in contradictions. We're a peace-loving society steeped in violence. We're a freedom-loving nation built on land stripped away from the original inhabitants marched off to reservations. We exalt free enterprise in a land that built its wealth on the labor of enslaved people. We're a nation of immigrants. But not you. Not right now. No, thank you. We love children unless they die inconveniently. And the reason I'm saying all of this after the violent attack that came on the U.S. Capitol, that same U.S. Capitol where the Sandy Hook parents went seeking justice, and after the second Trump impeachment, the reason I'm saying all this is that all I can think now is we've got to stop doing this stuff. But I know we won't. Some of it really is, as I said, baked into our character. And some of it is our near abandonment of character as a necessity for leadership. Every cycle, I think, the most important questions are the ones people think of as softballs. What's the most important book to you? Why? If you say it's the Bible, be prepared to spend the next 20 minutes talking about it. What music and movies inspire you? What is your philosophy of life? Tell me what you really love, and I'll tell you whether you're fit to lead us. But this is no lightning round. We need one of those Bill Moyers conversations that goes on for 90 minutes. Tell me who you really are. But here, I'm just singing a song of myself. If we did this, it would make no difference. Does anyone think that Lindsey Graham couldn't answer those questions in a way that would satisfy the people he needs to satisfy? He'll run for president in the next cycle. God help us. I didn't want to do this episode of Pardon Me because I'm as sick of this place as I was in 2013. Yes, I saw the virtue of America in the face of Stacey Plaskett, and I heard its anguish in the voice of Jamie Raskin. But I also heard Lindsey Graham say, there's no reason not to impeach Kamala Harris. And I heard McConnell wrap up his story of the last 60 days, like a restaurant owner locking up his joint after a rowdy night with a few unpleasant customers. After all, tomorrow is another day. And that's kind of the problem, Scarlett. Tomorrow is another day, but it's also the same day if we never fix anything. And instead of fixing anything, we're like a traveling repertory company, pulling our sets and costumes on a horse-drawn wagon to the next place where we'll stage a slightly different tragedy or farce with a disturbingly familiar cast. 
There are a million reasons I can't get on a plane and fly to Ireland this time. But don't think for a second that I'm not dreaming of it. <laughs>